There are in fact two readings this morning. The first short reading is taken from the book of Amos, chapter 9, which can be found on page 925 in the Pew Bibles. And you might like to keep a finger in that and also turn to John chapter 2, reading from verse 1 on page 1064. Amos chapter 9, reading from verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them says the Lord your God. The second reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days.
Thanks for reading that for us, Sarah. Um, I used to work for a church up in Derby, and before Julia, my wife, and I moved there, uh, they invited us up um, to go and meet uh, some of the leaders uh, just for a chat, just for a, not an interview, just for a chat. And I remember getting there, and we got into the, the, the lounge we were meeting in, and the opening question was, so Julia, what are David's strengths and weaknesses? Quite opening question to my wife Um, and Julia said weaknesses and uh, began to list them and I thought I thought afterwards what a great person to ask about me she knows me better than anyone else and then I thought what a terrible person to ask about me she knows me better than anyone else. And Julia, truthful as always, but I, my, genuine, my genuine feeling at that moment was she could have said a lot more. She could have said a lot more. And I, I was thinking, what if she'd written everything down? What if she'd written everything down, popped it in an envelope? It was in here this morning. Can you imagine that? Would you want to have a look? Um, if Julia, if I'd asked Julia, you know, pop down what I'm like, my weaknesses, things I'm not very good at. Would you want to read it? Would you want to see what she said? Maybe, maybe. But wait a minute, what if, it was, what if it wasn't my paper? What if it was yours? What if it was your bit of paper and someone who knows you really well had written down really what you were like? Do you want me to pull it out? Do you want me to read it here? Uh, you keep that in mind. Let, let me just pop this envelope here. You, you, you think about that envelope or your envelope for a bit. And just as we come to look back at John's gospel, we started last week, chapter one, if you remember, if you were here. And John's been introducing us to, to what's at the heart of the Christian message, to the one who's at the heart of the Christian good news. And he does it in a dramatic way. The beginning of his book, we saw last week that this one is with God and is God. That's what John's told us. He's eternal. He created everything. And the initial title he gave him was The Words, almost as if he's, he's the final word about who God is. If you're looking for a way to understand what defines God, what defines life, what defines you and me, John's saying this is the word that you need to listen to. And then the staggering claim partway through chapter one, where he says this one has taken on a human nature. He stepped onto the pages of history. He's taken to himself a postcode, if you like, and an accent so you could locate him. People could meet him. And his name is Jesus. And John begins to say that the purpose of your life and my life is bound up with whether you know this man who is God and whether you follow him or not. It's a big claim, isn't it? And John's a subtle writer as he begins to encourage you to trust and follow Jesus. He says, in effect, look, start with a week. Start with a week. You you can work out the days for yourself. But if you were to turn back just one page over, back to chapter 1 and verse 29, you see that John just gives us this little note. He says, the next day. And that starts day two. And if you were to follow on through the rest of the chapter, we pass through four days four other days. So at the beginning of chapter two, where it says on the third day, it's, it's three days later after that fourth day, it's the end of a week, seven days, a week of following Jesus. I don't know about you. If somebody says to you, um, you should follow me, the question I've got in my mind is, 
where will you take me if I follow you? What about Jesus? Where will he take you? In chapter 2, John says, he'll take you to a wedding. Don't know how you feel about that. Some people love going to weddings, don't they? Um, Some people really don't like it very much. I'm in the latter. If it's people I know well, that's great. But just being on a table with lots of people I don't know very well at the reception, it's, it's not so great for me. And also, I've got to the age, I used to be the oldest person on the young table. And that was all right. Now I've moved up. I'm now becoming one of the younger people on the older table. And it, it just feels a bit sad for me. But what, John says, John says Jesus will take you to a wedding. And as you read this, it's to a poorly organized wedding. And a socially awkward wedding. That doesn't sound very good at all. It's a funny thing to pick out. And yet John says, this is the place where this Jesus, how does he put it in verse 11? He says he revealed his glory. John says this is the first place you really get an insight into why Jesus is glorious, his good news. If you've been coming along to Christ Church and you're not quite sure yet what you make of Christian things, John says this is a good place to have a look if you want to know what this Jesus is like. If you are a Christian, it's a good place to come back to. Do you want to see why? Well, look, here's the first thing to think about. On, on the back of your little bit of paper, there's a couple of headings there. And the first one's just this. Look at Jesus' kindness. Don't know how you feel about socially awkward situations. I've got a friend who kind of loves them if she's watching them. It thrills her slightly when it all gets awkward. I hate it. I can't even watch the X Factor when it's on TV, when it gets embarrassing. I stand behind the door and peek in. Julia says, come in, sit down. I hate it. Don't know how you feel about them. But you can... Imagine this situation. Uh, my friend Peter and his wife Abby went to a friend's wedding. They were having a lovely time. And then, as it goes with weddings, after the ceremony's over, the crowd all head down to the reception. And they were there grabbing a drink, all having a, a happy chat. So then, as it goes with weddings, there's usually a big board with a seating plan. And, and Peter and Abby went up to see where they were sitting. And as they looked through it, they realized, our names aren't here. And that's when they discovered... Peter hadn't read the invitation very carefully. He wasn't invited to the reception, standing there with everyone milling around. It's awkward. I'd hate that. (laughs) It's awkward for them having to try and slip out before someone asks, like the bride or the groom, what are you doing here? Or trying to slip out before someone says, oh, are you not staying? And having to have that awkward conversation where you say, we weren't invited. So I hate the thought, awkward situations like that. Now this wedding at Cana, running out of wine, it's actually more than socially awkward, although it was that. In the culture of the day, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide for the wedding feast. His job to do that. And running out of wine, well, theirs was a a shame culture. And bringing shame like this, it could open you up to a lawsuit from disgruntled relatives. Not just embarrassing, it is potentially ruinous for reputations. And Jesus' mother finds out, and you see in verse 3, she brings Jesus in on the conversation. She says to him, they've no more wine. I'm not sure what she expected. It might be that just Jesus as her eldest son, she was got to know that he was resourceful. Maybe he could do something about it. But then his response to her in verse 4 is a little bit funny, isn't it? You see what he says. Woman, woman, why do you involve 
me. And just before you read too much into that, look, the, the word woman there is not disrespectful. It's not a disrespectful term uh, to, uh, to say to a woman. But for a son to a mother, it is just kind of distancing. And so it feels like a slight telling off as well. It's a, a gentle but firm, look, don't try and tell me what to do. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was already living away from home, and I popped home to visit my mum uh, one time. And she said, I'll take you out for dinner. That was great. It's nowhere fancy, but I'll take you out for dinner. And I had some jeans on and a casual top, and my mum said, go and change. And I said, no, I'm all right the way I am, actually. I, I'm quite comfortable in these clothes. And she said, no, go and change. And I said, look, mum, I'm 27 years old, and I think I can decide for myself what I'm going to wear. And my mum said, you're 27 years old and you'll have a bit more respect for your mother. Now go and change. (laughs) So I went and changed. (laughs) You do that with your mum, don't you? But there's not much of that here. There's no more pushback from Mary. Mary's next words, mother to a son, are a kind of acknowledgement Okay, Jesus, it's up to you. And she just says to the servants in verse 6, do whatever he tells you. It's a humble response. Whatever you say. And he does do something. You notice that. Six large stone water jars filled to the brim, and then some is drawn out. It's taken to the master of the banquet. He's probably a professional that's been employed to run the wedding feast, and he's blown away. It's the best wine of the day. And it's unusual because it's not the normal pattern. The the normal pattern is good stuff first until, well, let's say the effects are being felt and then you can just bring out the cheap stuff when nobody's going to bother too much. But not today. And he doesn't know where it comes from. Not many people do. The only people who would really know would have been Jesus, his mum, the few disciples there were already and a few of the servants. That's a miracle. I don't know what you think about miracles when you hear that. I was out uh, talking with a friend, went out for a drink with one of my neighbors. Now, he's not a Christian. We're talking about uh, what evidence it would take to believe in God. And he said something that I guess, I guess you hear um, from a lot of people. If, if God is real, why doesn't he prove it? And then we talked about a number of things. And again, he was saying something similar that I think you hear from people from time to time, when you point out a miracle, they would say, well, that kind of thing can't happen. So it's not true. And you think about that, but you can't have it both ways, can you? You can't say, I'll only believe in God if he does something God-like, something that no one else could do, and then say, if someone shows you something outside of normal experience, well, I can't believe that because that kind of thing doesn't normally happen. You can't have it both ways. And that's kind of the case with miracles. But the point of this miracle is not really to prove that God's real because nobody in this setting would have doubted that God was real. No, it's, it's to tell you something about what he's like, what he's come to do. And here's a few things to notice about Jesus. This says to us, he's impartially kind. Why did he say to his mom, don't involve me? Why are you involving me? And then go and do it anyway. 
Why did he not just do it? Well, I think the point is this. It's so that we would know he doesn't do this because his mum asked him. This Jesus is not for people if they manage to get on the right side of his mum. He's not someone that you can sort of ingratiate your way to somebody else and buy a bit of influence with him. No, he's impartially kind. The things he does is because he wants to do them. He's kind. And also tells us, look, he's concerned about shame. The bridegroom who thinks his wedding day is about to become a shameful catastrophe. He suddenly finds himself in the middle of the kind of joy that makes life feel unimaginably secure. Everything's going well. It's all come together. The wine's there. Everyone's happy. It looks good. And did you notice, Jesus does it all in a way that avoids embarrassment to him. He doesn't draw any attention to the groom's failings. He doesn't pass his envelope around. Jesus steps in and he he covers it all over. And here's another thing is he's joyfully generous. Look, if, if you come to my house and I run out of wine, you're on squash. That's it. I'm not rushing out anywhere. I'm not going to produce anything else for you. You'll have the squash. At the moment, it's cherries and berries that we've got. That's it. But this story, six stone water jars, each holding between 80 and 120 liters. You can do the maths. I think that works out somewhere between 600 and 1,000 bottles of the best kind of wife, wine. And wife, wine, um, that's what I meant. And the way they'd handle wine in those days, you'd dilute it at least one to three. So you think that's more like 3,000 bottles of wine. That's like inviting all of you to a party and buying 15 bottles each for you. You manage that? Would that be enough for you? Do you think that would be okay? You wouldn't run out? See, look at Jesus' kindness. This little story shows us he's impartially kind. He's concerned to cover shame. He's joyfully generous. I think you just read this story as it is. And you can see why Jesus remains an attractive historical figure. Even for those who are not Christians, he's an appealing figure. You look at him and you think, he's nice, isn't he? He's, he's a good guy. You can see why people would want to say he'd be an ideal wedding guest, helping in those kind of ways, impartially kind, doesn't want you to be shamed, joyfully generous. And yet you could still think, well, look, some wine at weddings... That's pretty cool. It's impressive. But you think about the things that go on in your life, some of the hard things that go on. Some of the things that really make you feel life is tough and hard. You think about some of the things in the wider world, some of the things that seem impossible to solve, and you think, is all God saying, look, I can produce some wine? Is that it? It's not good enough. I'm told Trinity College has more than 25,000 bottles of wine worth almost two million pounds. And they're not claiming divine glory, are they? Maybe they are a bit. I don't know. But they're not. And Jesus, I mean, kindness, yes. But glory, divine glory, really from this, where? Where? said at the beginning, John's a, a subtle writer. We're going to be reading through his book this year, but he's a subtle writer, and 
If you've not read it yet from where we left it last week through the rest of chapter 1, as you read through the rest of chapter 1, as people keep revolving around Jesus in this first week of activities around him, you keep hearing phrases like, look at him. Or somebody saying, come and see. Or somebody saying, you will see greater things than these. It's, it feels like John's way of saying, look, pay attention. Look carefully. Notice the details. Spend a bit of time looking at them. So come back again in this time. The thing to look at with this story is look, look at Jesus' glory. I mean, that's where John wants to get us to in verse 11, where he says, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There's something about this, John says. There's something here, if you see, that will make you think, he's the one I want to believe in and give my life to. So come back and look at it. Because the more you look, the more you see. You, you notice the way John's written, if you've been reading this, the start of his gospel kicks off with these words, in the beginning. And if you've read much of the Bible, you'll know those words also start the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the creation story. As Genesis starts, we hear in the beginning. And in Genesis, that's followed by a week of activity. And it's the same in John's gospel. In the beginning, followed by a week of activity. That's interesting. And in Genesis, after that week of activity, what's the big life event that follows? Well, it's a wedding, isn't it? It's a wedding with Adam and Eve. And you think, well, that's what John's got as well. In the beginning, a week of activity followed by a wedding. And back in Genesis, we're told this wedding couple that were introduced to Adam and Eve felt no shame. But then things go wrong. They turn from God, they rebel against them, they disobey his word, and the consequences come, the first of which seems to be they hide from God, afraid and ashamed. Uh, their envelope, if you like, begins to fill up with all the wrong kind of things. And God comes looking. They want to hide it away. And the consequences are serious. The shame is real. And the Bible would say to us from that point on, for, for you and for me as well, that's the consequences and the shame that we're all born into. It's why parents, those of you who are parents, you need to teach your children to do what's right and good. But without you teaching them, they seem to know how to do what's wrong. You don't teach them to do wrong things. It's not just children, because it's why you and me as adults, even knowing, even knowing right and wrong, we still choose what's wrong. It's why when I say, what if your stuff, what if your stuff was really in this envelope and I opened it, that feels uncomfortable. Even though you know I don't have anything in there on you, probably. Now you and I have things we feel rightly ashamed of. And the Bible's message to us is that we're guilty before God. We've done shameful things and however we try to cover it, we stand on the brink of being exposed. But the story of the Bible is that God has promised to do something about it, to to graciously deal with the causes and the consequences of what it calls our, our sin and our shame. And the Bible sets us looking for the one who could come and save us. How would you recognize him? 
It also begins to describe the kind of life he wants to bring us to, the, the place he will lead us if we follow him. And one of the places it does that was that other reading from Amos. You don't need to look back to it now, but let me remind you of what it says. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. It's, it's kind of describing in agricultural terms a, a sense of joyful abundance. Almost like before you've even gathered in all the harvest you've got, they're having to plow and get ready for the next law, and it keeps going on like that. There's just too much of it. And then it says this, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills and I will bring my people back. And you get the picture that's going on there. It's it's hard for us to imagine in Cambridge hills. You, you, You know, you've seen pictures of them, haven't you? But maybe on a holiday when you've been north to the glorious north and you you see them and you see those waterfalls and it said, just imagine, just imagine those waterfalls. If it wasn't running with water, but they were red with wine, the best kind of wine, that stuff is sweet. It tastes yummy. Imagine that. Imagine being in a place like that, Yorkshire, something like that. And the picture of more wine than you will need. We understand, don't we, there are some things where this is really about that. You, you know the kind of thing. So, you see a bucket in spade and you're thinking about beach holidays. You see fireworks going off and you're thinking about bonfire night or the 4th of July. You see red roses. You're thinking romance. This is really about that. And John's saying the same thing here. Chapter 2 at this wedding. This thing that Jesus does is really about that other thing. That other thing that the whole Bible is talking about. About wanting to deal with our sin and our shame. And then you notice the details again. If you've got that in mind, if you understand that's what's going on here. Now you look at those details again in a new light and you see what they tell you about Jesus. He is impartially kind. Not just for one person at a wedding, but that's what he come to be for everyone. Impartially kind. He doesn't offer to help you because you've got on the good side of his mum because you've found a way to leverage him. No, his kindness is genuine for you. He's impartially kind. Whoever you are, whatever situation you find yourself in, this says to you, he will be impartially kind to you. And if there is anything to learn from his mum, it is to humbly ask him to do what he knows will be best. Do whatever he tells you. It also says to us that this Jesus, he's concerned about your shame. I don't know what comes to mind. I don't know what comes to mind when you think about this envelope, what it might be filled up with. I'm glad you don't know what comes to my mind when I think about it. But the God who knows you, he knows all of it and more. And did you notice the detail in verses 6 and 7? Just look at those. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that we're told that the Jews use for ceremonial washing, a little detail is put in. It's not just a detail for the sake of it. One of the ways God taught his people in the Old Testament about the mess our sin makes was to frame it in terms of making us unclean, needing to be washed, purified. Washing with water was never going to fix it. But we understand in some situations this thing is really about that thing. And these jars for purifying water, they are filled to the brim. There are no gaps left, as much as you need. Wouldn't it be something? 
you think about the kind of things that have happened in your life, the things you feel ashamed of, wouldn't it be something if God could find a way, if God could send someone who could really wash away all the things you feel ashamed about to the brim, all of them gone, and leave no gaps? You see what John's saying? This is really about that. It's Jesus you're looking for. And then he says to us, he's joyfully generous. All that wine. It's a funny picture, isn't it? You might want to think about it this way. Have you, you remember a good party you've been to? Remember the feeling of being at a party with, with maybe good friends, good company, just a joyful time. The food's been delicious. The drink has flowed. And you have this feeling of, I wish this day could go on forever. And the gospel says to us, that's what life's meant to be about. A day as joyful as that, that goes on forever. This is about that feeling. That's what Jesus is bringing. That's the joyful generosity of the God we meet in Jesus Christ. And John says, look at his glory. Do you see it? Come and see it. He's impartially kind. He's concerned about your shame. He is joyfully generous. Do you want to follow him? And if you're wondering, if you're wondering, how can he cover my shame? How can he bring me this joy? Look, keep reading through John. He wants to draw you in. We're going to do that over this year. Most books, you don't want to spoil the endings, do you? I'm... I'm reading Lord of the Rings with my boys and I'm, I'm just sort of always anxious that someone is going to tell them something. There's someone who's seen the film and it will just spoil something later on. I don't want them to hear it. I don't want them to, to spoil what's coming. But Some books are like that, but, but this book, let me give you a spoiler. And there's a hint of it in verse 4. Do, do you remember verse 4 as we read it? Jesus says another little intriguing thing as, he's, as his mother talks to him and he says, why do you involve me? And Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. It's a funny thing to see, my hour has not yet come. That phrase is going to be used a lot through John's gospel. John's gospel seems to be leading up to this significant hour. What is it? There's one other occasion where Jesus addresses his mother as woman. And one other occasion in John's gospel. And John's a subtle writer. It comes in chapter 19, verse 26, when he's on the cross. And that seems to be Jesus' defining hour. You can go and read later what he's doing for his mum, but I think in part he is being impartially kind to her but also on the cross, dying what everyone would know was a shameful death for the worst of offenders. And it's significant to note that from the cross, the one who provided abundant wine for others in chapter 2, in John chapter 19, calls out, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. You see what John's telling us? The word of God. He, he sees our shame. He, he knows what's in our envelope. And he takes it to the cross with him. He doesn't want to embarrass you or humiliate you. He takes it to the cross. And he bears it for us so he can cover us with forgiveness. 
and the word of God sees our lack and he endures thirst for us so that he can begin to generously share his joyful life with us. John says, see his glory and believe in him. In a moment, we're going to come and share a meal of wine and bread that speak about the Lord Jesus. Before we do that, why not just take a moment, a moment for you to think on these things, to think about the Lord Jesus. There might be a prayer you want to pray just now. But you just take a moment to do that. And then I'll lead us in what we're going to do next.